Welcome to DeFi by Design, where we talk all things blockchain and cryptocurrency while striving to educate, empower, and enrich. Welcome back to the DeFi by Design podcast brought to you by The Rollup, a media and education company that provides high quality, actionable insights and information on all things layer twos, rollups, DeFi, scaling solutions, new protocols, juicy alpha, and insightful research. We're excited to share with you the latest trends and development in the DeFi space so you can stay informed and ahead of the curve. Without further ado, we will jump right into this episode with a brief update on some of our current sponsors. Buffer Finance is a non-custodial, exotic options trading platform built to trade short-term price volatility and hedge risk of high leverage positions. They are a leader in the arbitrum charge taking over on layer twos and totally understand the potential of blockchain technology and how it's transforming the finance industry. They are proud to support DeFi by design. If you're looking for a platform to trade short-term options, look no further than Buffer Finance. With their innovative tech, easy to use platform, they're at the forefront of the options tech in Arbitrum. Visit their website, buffer.finance, and take a look at all their options. ZKX is a leader in the decentralized derivative DEX market on StarkNet. StarkNet is a cutting edge technology built to help scale Ethereum using ZK rollups. They understand the potential of scaling, blockchain tech, and how it's going to change the world of leverage trading. ZKX protocol is happy to be on testnet and will be on mainnet very shortly. Check out ZKX protocol on Twitter, as well as on Crew3 to get more information about what's going on on StarkNet. What's going on, guys? Welcome back to the DeFi by Design podcast. Excited that you're here, and thank you. Uh, before we jump in, I just want to give you guys a quick couple words about our lovely sponsors who make this show possible. First, we have Metis Network. Right now, every Layer 2 optimistic rollup uses a single sequencer to run their network. This creates a large security and decentralization risk. If that one sequencer goes down due to a malicious actor, seizure by outside authorities, or anything else, the results could be catastrophic. Soon, Metis will launch the first ever sequencer pool. By spreading sequencer duties across multiple parties, Metis will decentralize the most important function of a blockchain network, combine that with their network of block producers and validators, and Metis will become one of the first truly decentralized layer twos using a decentralized sequencer. These sequencers will be required to stake and lock a minimum of 20,000 Metis tokens, which effectively ensures that they will act with the network's best interest in mind. I'm pretty excited about this personally because during DevConnect, we listened to a lot of talks about decentralizing sequencers, and even Vitalik gave a talk about the roadmap to decentralized sequencers. The more that we can push this innovation forward, the more that we can push this ethos of decentralization forward, it makes the entire ecosystem better. So thank you, Metis, for supporting the rollup, and we look forward to seeing this come to fruition. Everyone's feeling bullish. Episode 115 of the DeFi by Design podcast. We're here. J. Cole, yes, we got the rapper himself here today with us, the crypto version, Jean from Hyperlane. We got Rob. He, Rob just came off the Pudgy Penguin party. You feel Pudgy, Rob? What's going on, brother? How you doing? Dude, <laughs> I feel like I am my Pengu. My Pengu is me. The fun time. Oh, yeah. I'd be one of my favorite... Uh crypto references it just that's a good sign if someone's in the know they know about being your penguin these guys will get on twitter spaces and just scream i am a penguin like penguin is me for a penguin straight imagine having a job doing anything else right like i used to work i used to work for wall street bank like can't go back yeah it's like you're in a wall street bank 
actually looks like you're in a nice loft. How do you, uh, yeah, yeah, it look nice. So I've always dreamed of having a loft for some reason. I don't know why. What's that? You were, yeah, go ahead. No, I was curious. This that we got Jay Cole in the building, you know, not the rapper. We got a we had a more of a, a finance savvy John here from Hyperlate. Used to work with uh, Novogratz. What's a what's a what's a crazy story that you got for us that's not confidential to to really show the audience what you guys have made up here? All right. Well, this one I don't think he'd get upset if I told. Um, but so you know, I've worked with Mike for three years still. You know, still talk to him uh, fairly frequently. He's an excellent, excellent guy, and just it was a blast uh, working with him. And there was a period of time where there's two folks, two younger dudes who uh, developed quite a reputation for themselves in the industry as investors, traders, and they start thinking about uh, creating a fund. And of course, right, like Mike likes to back. Um, you know, young folks who are promising. Spend some time talking to them. Then at a certain point, they're in New York. Is like, come, let's do dinner at my house. Turns out one of these guys uh, is, uh, you know, is a combat sports kind of guy. Does a little bit of MMA, you know, he trains. In some point through that conversation, I don't know how they get to it, but this could certainly happen with Mike because Mike loves, loves, loves wrestling. Like, it's a massive passion of his. Uh, you know, he's super involved in, like, the college wrestling organization. And at some point, somehow it gets to, like, one of these young guys tells Mike Novogratz, like, you're old. I could take you down. And, you know, it's like a little bravado. He's talking it up. What he doesn't know, Mike's a maniac. Mike has a mat in his house. You can't challenge Mike to, you know, a wrestling match and not expect to actually wrestle. So he's like, motherfucker, I got a mat right here. We're going to go right now. <laughs> they, and I get a call. Um, so all I know is this dinner is happening. We get a call late at night from an excited Mike. And he's like, so I had the guys here for then. I'm like, yeah, how'd it go? And I'm like thinking, you know, he's excited because he's going to tell me like, oh, is it, is it? Well, one of these like tells me the guy and basically challenged me. And he goes, I whooped his ass in like 30 seconds. He had no chance. He didn't know what he was getting into. <laughs> and uh, that's one of, still one of my favorite Mike stories. It's absolutely true. I'm, that's the reason why I'm like not being more deep, giving more details because like the person he is, Absolutely wonderful guy, uh, super sharp and brilliant. It had no idea that that's how it was going to go down, right? Like, uh, but that's my favorite Mike story that I could share. There's the guy with digital culture, Korea. No wonder they're absolute kings over there. <laughs> and he, we got Jake Volwood to make a husband. He come on. Yeah, that was a great. Uh, it was a great time. I had that. I had fun being there. Was this before he got the Luna tattoo? And he was feeling oh, all jacked up. Well, I didn't do it like, let's, let's go sell I think it was before. I think it, well, it could have been after, but it, yeah, I don't actually remember. I mean, that's an uh, easy one to be like, you know, that was the dog of mine. I mean, it's cool tattoo. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so, you know, I've been in crypto for like six years now. Um, I got in. I got involved really because a buddy from school 
you know, at the time I'm working in Morgan Stanley, I'm like a bond trader. And a buddy from school at a birthday party asks me, it's like, yo, John, it's like, this is the spring of 2016. Like, hey, I'm going to put all my money into Ethereum. What do you think? And I'm like, I don't know, dude. I don't know if it's a good idea. I don't know if it's a bad idea. I, I just don't, I just don't know. He's like, you want to look into it with me? And I'm like, sure. And we start looking into it. Like we go back to his house and we end up spending like the next two days just going super deep into this. And I'm like, this shit's so fucking cool. I go back to the trading desk Monday morning. I'm like, we ain't going to have a job. We're going to like, it's fucking, we're all fucked. Like you don't understand. Um, and just gradually got more and more and more into crypto. And they all thought I was nuts. Uh, and then like late 17, early 18, uh, I got my first job. It was a fund called Passport Capital. It was a big macro fund uh, that was getting into crypto. It was their first hire for that. Uh, had a good run there. And um, I'm gonna give or take two years later, joined Galaxy and eventually started um, co-leading the investment business there with another guy, uh, Michael Jordan, who was a good friend and just one of the sharpest people around. It's genuinely his name. Um, yeah, J. Cole and Michael Jordan. Yeah, he's every bit as impressive as any of the three other famous Michael Jordans. Uh, he started. He recently started his own firm called DBA with uh, John Charbonneau. Those guys are definitely worth. Uh, really, yeah. that guy's subject's amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, he replaced me. You know, one John with another John. And um, substantially better writer. And now you're at Hyperlane building the mods. Then we started Hyperlane. Yeah, you know the interop specifically for the modular ecosystem you know we work a lot with celestia we try to have a lot of fun uh here to tell you all about it hell yeah well we are some modular maxis ourselves so that hurts um i was giving you trouble because i, I can't bridge my uh my my fear back so what a great place to start <laughs> um this is a Die EDM fanboys are dying to get their hands on some of these precious Chia tokens. Luckily for us, we got the Hyperlane giving us some accessibility via Trader Joe and Manta. Trader Joe on Arbitrum and Manta Network. Better better uh, liquidity for sure on Trader Joe on Arbitrum. Um, and yeah, I would love to understand, uh, first from like a security perspective, what the, and for our, our community, what the uh, premise of that Tia.n token is the the wrap Tia token from Hyperlane on Manta or or on Arbitrum. Kind of how is that secured? And then yeah, what are the plans to open up a two way bridge? Yeah, of course. So uh, actually, it is just a clarify. It is two way. You just can't do it in one click yet. So if you want to go back, so you can go one click from Celestia directly to Manta or Arbitrum, and the same will be true for any new chains that. Uh, want to get Tia and get, uh, you know, deploy Hyperland and get added to this. But the way back now is still two steps, unfortunately, because it's a slightly separate work stream. Uh, I just haven't had the bandwidth to get to it. But if you wanted to get back to Celestia proper, you would go from uh, either Manta or Arbitrum to Newt first and then IBC transfer over back to Celestia. Right now, the, the app interface basically abstracts away the need to go from Celestia to Neutron in the first place. It kind of lumps it all into one action for you. Uh, unbundling that on the way back, we still haven't gotten to that. Uh, will change sometime in the next few weeks, but not there yet. 
to your other question, perhaps a much more important one is like, how does shit work? Like, what's the security premise here? Well, how about being loved? Why am I not being loved? Why are you not being exactly right? Uh, a very important question. Yeah. So, unlike other uh, interoperability providers, Hyperlane uh, has a very distinct uh, security setup. So, generally speaking, for the most, I'd say this is probably true to pretty much every major interop protocol that I'm aware of. Uh, security is tightly coupled with the mechanism of like delivering the messages. So whatever is the process by which like a developer uses this protocol to just transfer something, that and how that protocol secures the messages is very tightly coupled. Um, and what that means is like there's usually some enshrined uh, security model, you know, so like uh, in the case of XLR, you have just a super robust validator set. In the case of Wormhole, similarly, you have like the Guardians, some of the most premier, you know, um, in organizations in crypto, just folks that have a lot to lose and obviously are not like in any rush to uh, burn their business by like uh, committing, you know, Wormhole fraud. Hyperlane's different, it has a modular security architecture, and it basically decouples the product of connecting chains, the interface for connecting these chains, from the ways of securing that connection. Specifically in Hyperlane, like we care about securing the outbound communication. So like you're sending something from, you know, Arbitrum to anywhere else. We care about securing the message going from Arbitrum. We do that like that needs to happen once, once that message is secured, anyone can leverage that to receive it somewhere else. So think of it as like something is being broadcasted from the chain, like you put some security around it and we'll get in a second into like the different forms of that security can take. And now anywhere where you have a hyperlane mailbox, you can receive that communication. You just have to be comfortable with like whatever was securing it. Uh, this is a really nice property. It means that like once we start, uh, once the, your chain is supported and someone is running some type of security for that, other chains can connect to your chain without ever having to even talk to you. Like that message is being broadcast and they can just pick it up anywhere else. So specifically for the TIA bridge, right now the TIA bridges, the messages come out of Neutron. And uh, to secure those, We've partnered with the Neutron team. They've been a very active participant in building that Nexus bridge. And they've helped galvanize uh, a nice subset of the broader Neutron validators to secure those messages. So in what we want to get it to is we want to get it to as close as possible to the full uh, validator set on Neutron. And then it basically looks like the same security guarantees as just using Neutron outright. We're going to do the same with Osmosis uh, when Hyperlane launches on Osmosis, probably sometime in the next four weeks. Because again, security isn't prescriptive. We can basically uh, leverage all different forms of security. And so what we like to start with is for chains that have their own validator set, it's so nice to be able to get that same set. Because uh, then as a user, there's no new trust uh, assumption that's added. You're like, when you use a chain, you are explicitly trusting that that validator set is, you know, for lack of a better term, kosher. Uh, 
And so if you can bring that same set of guarantees for um, interoperability, we really like that. But of course, you're not going to be always able to do that, right? Like sometimes, you know, we're going to be sending messages out of Ethereum and like we're not going to be able to get every single Ethereum validator, right? There's so many um, in the current construction of Ethereum that that is kind of like, that's an untenable ask. So what do you do? So similarly, you could have these validator subsets. We're also working on activating staking. And so it won't just be reputation-based. Uh, so you'll have these validators putting dollars on the line. What'll be nice about this is that if you're a chain that wants to use Hyperlane, like, or even if you're just an app that wants to use Hyperlane between like well-trodden chains, you could incorporate your token into the security of the messages. So you could say, well, uh, these validators need to stake my asset. Uh, maybe you want to bring in another asset, like you want them to stake uh, uh, Lido's version of ETH. You could do that. Uh, Cosmos chains could leverage their own assets. So there's a lot of cool things that you can do with it. Really what this security architecture lets us do is it lets us bring in any mode uh, of like state attestation or state proof and leverage that to secure to secure things. And because of the more open architecture that we brought to Hyperlane, like we've even we're even seeing other teams, not the core team, bring uh, bring security modules to Hyperlane. So Electron, which is an awesome team that's built a zk light client, they wrap that zk light client as a Hyperlane security module. And so where that zk light client is operating, you can now use that instead of any like validator set. Um, there's a few other. ZK related things where this is happening as well. So we're very excited about that. Um, but the truth is ZK is still like not, not something that would fit to most people's needs because the proving time is still a bit long. Like no one wants to wait for especially small transfers. You know, no one wants to wait like 15, 25, 30 minutes if they don't have to. And so the way we think about this is with Hyperlane, you can actually, uh, dynamically route messages based on the contents of the message. So maybe if transactions are of really meaningful size, then you can move to that slower but safer ZK option. And for smaller stuff, just hey, just give it to me the fastest, right? What is going to get me here in 30 seconds? Oh, it's this validator option. Let's go with that. Uh, so that's high level on like how this is secured and also gives you a better picture of how anything can be secured uh, for any hyperlink connection. Gotcha. Um, from so from the from my perspective, it's it's almost like we you just explained more or less um, in an aggregator of of options. Uh, which yes, provides so kind of leading leading into that. Um, I think that like uh, aggregation of trust is not necessarily always the best case because even if you have two or three or three or four, you know you kind of have problems. Uh, you know, in some cases where, you know, you can choose the three best bridges, but, but also, um, you know, those, if some of them, or if one of them is, you know, is a problem or there's some sort of, uh, I guess a collaborative effort to, to, uh, you know, to act against, uh, you know, this, the best interest of who's using it, you know, you kind of have some, some problems there. So you guys tackle this by giving users optionality from what I understand, as well as, uh, our also putting assets at stake to uh, allow, uh, you know, protocols to also uh, incentivize or, or to incentivize protocols not to, you know, have some sort of 
negative outcome uh, because they have assets at stake. I guess what I'm what I'm curious about is, is yeah, like this aggregation. How do you guys tackle the uh, the objectivity of which which bridges you choose? How do you kind of incentivize them? And you know, the users get to choose, but you know, do you guys pick a subset of what you guys think is the best bridge options? Or yeah. So you know, generally we leave it up. So Hyperlight, we built it to really be the. Uh, we wanted to create something that would be a permissionless option for interoperability. You know, just like what is going to be the permissionless layer that anyone can use to connect any chain. And so primarily, like Hyperlane is actually used by other people. Nexus is the first time where us in conjunction with uh, the Neutron team, like we had a goal. We wanted to get Tia into uh, into new rollups that are using Celestia. And so that's one where like we, uh, you know, together with them operate. Um, and so there we're using, like I mentioned, right, the subset of Neutron validators. There's no real bridge aggregation there. But as a framework, Hyperlane lets you do the bridge aggregation. So one area where this is happening is uh, I can't mention too much about like the specific product project, but uh, it's neutron related, and um, they're going to be aggregating a Hyperlane validator set, a uh, Ax XLR and wormhole. And so uh, for those messages to come through for that app, what it means is like you're going to need to get the same information from all three. If that doesn't come through, the messages won't get processed. And so, um, and that similarly, like they're not using, this project is using uh, Hyperlane as the main aggregation framework, meaning like their, you know, when their contracts uh, interfaces with something, it interfaces all with Hyperlane contracts and uh, then routes using Hyperlane routes to the other bridges. A uh, similar thing was built also by Ave, but Ave used like a little bit more of their own stuff where uh, for uh, for like governance now, for sorry, for interchain governance, Ave has a proposal of, uh, or sorry, like the work needs to be implemented, hasn't been done yet. They have uh, aggregated Hyperlane, Layer 0, and Chainlink. Um, but unlike the other project, they built that aggregation layer themselves because, uh, you know, it's a bigger project. They wanted to uh, sink their teeth into it. And so it's not to tell you that like aggregation is used everywhere where Hyperlane is, but everywhere Hyperlane exists, the option for aggregation exists. And the, the, the thing that you kind of started off the podcast with is like essentially the, when we're using these chains, we're trusting that these chains are kosher. Happy Hanukkah, by the way. Um, and save too. So, so it, when we, when a project implements Hyperlane, uh, is this like oh, a better way to ask this question is when Hyperlane is aggregating these messaging networks and bridges, uh, are you essentially aggregating like the the validators themselves from these networks? And that is kind of like where the messages are pinged across because I'm, I'm, I guess like you mentioned the, the validators, this is why it's important for validator sets to be decentralized. So how do you think about which validator sets to aggregate as part of Hyperlane? Right. That's a great question. 
So generally we try to do like less, less thinking about that. Um, you know, and first what we did was like build a thing, build Hyperlane in such a way where like it could integrate with and aggregate any of these. But then you actually need to go ahead and do some work so that the developer that wants to use this aggregation feature is like they don't need to, you know, do so much by themselves. And so there we did exercise some thinking. And so the first two that we've worked to like have that aggregation feature with were XLR and Wormhole simply because those sets, while, you know, yeah, maybe some people might not think that they're perfect, they're, they're pretty good, right? Like both in terms of chain coverage and the, uh, you know, the who's actually in the sets, right? You know, like we know everyone who is in the wormhole guardians. Those are very reputable, trustworthy people who run like really strong organizations. That set is as good as it gets. You know, the XLR set is an expansion on the wormholes that it doesn't have complete overlap, but it has a lot of the same characters. It's larger, generally really strong. Um, and so that's how we thought about like, well, you have to decide what to do first. We decided to do those two first for those reasons. Uh, and just like the, the robustness of those sets. But again, like, you know, one thing is don't think of Hyperl as like simply, you know, think of it as a framework for interoperability. Not so much as like the fact that it can aggregate, like is very appealing to, to some users, but uh, you can also use it kind of standalone where you as the chain, you can operate it yourself. You don't need to depend on anyone else. And so like if you're, you know, an up and comer, just a type of chain that like can't get the, you know, if you're the type of team that's still small, like you can't get the time of day, you're not hyped yet. And so no one, will, the other people won't take you seriously. Like hyperlinks for you. You could just do everything yourself with it. You could leverage your own validator set, any type of security you want. You could run your own relay. And now you can get connected to any other chain that has hyperlane. And again, you do it in a completely self-sovereign way. Like you ain't got to, uh, and that to me is like, yes, it's not the most, uh, active place where hyperlane is being used. Cause simply there's just not as much usage for those guys by definition. But it's to me the most exciting or the most, the thing I enjoy the most is knowing that we give that option to anyone. Yeah. I mean, that's what I was getting at as well. Like, not just, it's not an aggregation layer doesn't define what hyperlane is. It's like if I'm a young, hungry, hungry degent who's trying to get on this modular vibe and I'm like, oh man, modular narrative, I'm going to the moon. I got to, I, I got to spin up a modular rollup using Gelato. I got to use Celestia for my DA. EVM, so I'm going to do something else. I'm going to use Cartesi VM, but I need a interrupt solution. So what what framework do I use? Bang! I can just plug Hyperlane as the framework for my modular rollup. So what does that look like? I am trying to build a modular rollup. I'm choosing, and again, I'm trying to establish this narrative where you need to choose an interrupt solution as part of your modular stack. It's not just DA VM and settlement. It's also interrupt, and it's it's even also sequencing. Uh, which is kind of being developed as well with shared signatures and decentralized signatures. So what does that look like for, I'm building a module rollup, I'm choosing Hyperlane as my interop of my step. Uh, like, yeah, that's a great to me. Very, very good question. In fact, uh, you know, one of the earlier writings I, I had um, sometime this year 
was just about this notion that like interoperability is a part of the stack. It ha has become one. Uh, and so to, you know, to talk about modular chains without talking about, you know, permissionless interoperability, especially is kind of just, it's a dead end. Um, so I'm uh, glad to hear you say that. Now, to really answer your question, let's talk quickly. I'll give like a high level overview. What does it even mean to have Hyperlane on your chain? Like, what do you need? What are the moving pieces? And so to integrate Hyperlane, there are three big things that needs to, that need to happen. First, uh, there's what we call the mailbox and some assorted contracts. The mailbox does exactly what it sounds like. It sends and receives stuff between chains. It's been, it can be implemented pretty much in, uh, for any VM. It's obviously live for EVM chains, uh, also for, also exists, uh, as Kazem Wazem, also in C-level, the Solana VM and, uh, basically near done for move thanks to the amazing work by the movement labs team. So you want hyperlane, uh, you want an integration. That means those contracts need to be deployed on that chain. You want to uh, be working with. Taking a quick commercial break here to tell you guys about our lovely sponsors. Right before we get back to this fascinating discussion, we have a message from our current sponsors. Here we go. I want to take a moment to introduce you to our sponsor, Premia Finance. Premia is a native options protocol that offers market-driven pricing and capital-efficient returns for traders and liquidity providers. With Premia, you can trade options on a variety of different crypto assets. What sets Premium apart is its unique pricing mechanism, which is based on the market's expectation of future volatility. This means that options prices are always in line with market conditions, which provides traders with the most fair and transparent pricing. Recently, Premium has just launched their Options Academy, where you can learn for free how to become a proficient options trader. Feel free to check it out at premium.finance, hedge your risks, or amplify your positions um, to earn more capital efficient returns on Premium Finance. Thank you. And another exciting sponsor to introduce you is Plana Finance. I've recently been onboarded as an advisor for Plana Finance, which is one of the first self-custodial wallets to support account abstraction. With Plana Finance, you can revolutionize your crypto experience and take control of your assets like never before. Say goodbye to the hassle of managing multiple wallets. Hello to a seamless user-friendly experience. Plana Finance allows you to easily manage your assets, swap tokens, and earn rewards all in one place on your mobile phone. They have an app in the Apple App Store as well as in the Google Play Store. Uh, with Plana Finance's self-custodial wallet, you hold the keys to your assets, ensuring the highest level of security and privacy. With tons of cool features like gasless trading, um, interesting yield competitions, and cool NFTs, there's an amazing amount of effort going into building this app that already has tens of thousands of users. So what are you waiting for? Download Planet Finance today and experience the future of crypto wallets. The second thing is we just spent all this time talking about security earlier. In Hyperlane, we have like we have what we call ISMs or interchain security modules. And these modules can take the form of anything. The simplest one to get set up for like a new chain integration is an authority-based one where you say, hey, here is a validator that looks at the mailbox. We have open sourced all that software, make it uh, very easily and accessible. All it is truly is it's think of it like a bot that looks at uh, the mailbox and then sees, oh, Andy is trying to send something to Robbie's chain. Okay, looks, everything checks out here. If everything checks out, uh, the bot signs off on that 
you can have as many validators as you'd like. Uh, each one needs to run the same bot. The nice thing is they don't even need to talk to each other. And so when these signatures are being used, there's not any like interactive element. Rather, it's just each validator on its own looks, signs, and then later on, all of those signatures are taken to the destination by the third piece uh, of a hyperlane integration. That's the relayer, also an off-chain bot, also something that we've open sourced and uh, anyone can run for any chain. That relayer basically needs to be able to read the mailboxes uh, that it's connecting between. So it sees up on Andy's chain. I got Andy. He sent in a message. It looks by, based on the looks of this, uh, I can tell there need to be three signatures. I see that there are these three signatures here all exist from these three uh, different validators. Looks good to me. Now I'm going to try and process this message, meaning I am taking it to the mailbox on Robbie's chain and I initiate the process function. This is where now we're going to check against those signatures, see that they're valid signatures. Uh, this is also where if you'd had any other logic, like, oh, uh, if the messages of this size do this, if it's that size, do that. If you wanted to like, you know, have a certain blacklist for certain addresses, this is all where it all would come in. And we pass through all that logic, everything looks good. We arrive at our destination, which would usually be either a EOA or a contract on the, you know, on Robbie's chain. And so we need a mailbox. We need at least one security module. You can use multiple ones. And we need a relayer. Uh, now, to deploy all these, we've created a CLI, so like just a nice command line interface that helps you do all of that. Uh, cool enough is that a company called Kurtosis, which is like a cloud management uh, company where the announcement will be coming out soon, but it's already live. They've actually built, um, you know, like a hosted environment for Hyperlane where you could, like, you could run all this stuff uh, on their infra. It's like two or three minutes type of thing. Uh, now, do you really need to be able to do it in two or three minutes? I don't know, but it's, it's a really, really, really nice tool. Highly recommend uh, checking it out if you're going to be experimenting with Hyperlane. Uh, they've done tremendous, tremendous work. They've made it so smooth. Uh, and so that's really what it means. Like you need those, you need to deploy those contracts. You need to operate uh, at least one security mechanism and uh, you need to run the relayer. Now, more and more, like the core team here at, at, at our company, Abacus, uh, Abacus Works, is happy to provide those second services, right? Of like deployment, of uh, helping with validation, helping with relaying. But you don't need to, you could always do it yourself. Even if we were to help in the beginning, uh, we could very easily transition to a mode where like, again, you retain your sovereignty, you do it yourself. So that's what it means to like integrate it. And then uh, once that's done, you can have nice experience like the, the Nexus bridge that you use. Yeah. And so that kind of, from a, from a main chain to a roll up, uh, I, I, you have these things called canonical bridges where it's, you know, let's say for example, in an arbitrum, it's the, uh, it's the, opt it's the optimistic roll-up bridge with the seven day fraud proof. It's the bridge that arbitrary made themselves. Um, basically that, that is like the, the, the bridge with the least amount of trust assumptions. 
implementing hyperlink into your modular rollup, I'm sort of thinking about it in a similar mental model wherein you kind of natively inherit a interop layer that is similar to a canonical bridge in that you get the uh, the level of security from hyperlane with the mailboxes in the ISM um, natively embedded into your into your stack uh, of, on the rollup that you're creating, and then that allows you um, to have that that kind of native interrupt embedded without needing to seek out uh, you know other third party breach partners or you know the yeah I'll just stop there. Yeah, no, no, no. That's a that's a really good point. Now, what I'll tell you is, yes, that is uh, all true. What you said. What in practice, what we've seen is, especially with the VM rollups, is folks still want to use uh, something like the the canonical bridge, like a standard rollup bridge, for I think you know, an optimism they call it portal. I forget what it's called uh, in orbit and um, in Arbitrum stack. But use that for the gas token and then use something like Hyperlane for all the other assets. Primary reason is uh, like very few people want to move around the gas token once it's on the chain, right? Like, but stable coins, uh, you know, other assets, something like Tia, you might want to move between different rollups and like send to other places. And so that's a, we we thought too that people would be like oh actually no I'll just use this for everything there are cases where it's being used for everything but uh, increasingly we're seeing folks being like ah well you know what let's for the gas token let's still have like that optimistic bridge that seven day uh, exit game it's not an asset that people are going to want to transfer generally so like fine um, but that's what we're seeing in practice and. Once you get Hyperlane on your rollup, it's very easy then to, like I mentioned before, have connectivity with any other chain that has Hyperlane. So it's, uh, you don't need to then create like these, you know, bi-directional channels for each chain. All you need to is just like make sure that that really you're, you're running uh, is aware of the Hyperlane deployments on the chains you want to connect and you're off to the races. So in that sense, it's... Uh, it's been pretty cool for people who are picking this up now. Yeah, hence the the permissionlessness of it, um, which is so important as there's hundreds, if not thousands of rollups to be seen on the horizon. It it is important for those to get connected so that they're not they're not liquidity and users in silos. Um and I'm curious a little bit more about like the solution itself, like uh, Andy brought up canonical bridges and, and kind of like the similarities and differences there. Another uh, communication solution that we're seeing being used to communicate across blockchains is IBC. Like, could you just kind of like quick, you know, like compare and contrast, like what is what is the similarities? How do you relate to build the perspective of like what Hyperlate is? Could you kind of like, relate it to IBC and, and talk about where it's similar and where it's different? For sure. It is, let's say like it's a lot more similar. Uh, it's much more similar than not. Think of, you know, the way that uh, I said is I probably is very, uh, very, very much heavily inspired by IBC. Some of the people who, you know, helped us build Hyperlane, uh, were there to build IBC, right? And uh, most notably in Zucky. 
so it's fair to say that like without IBC, Hyperlane doesn't look the way that it looks today. Uh, it was rather that, you know, once you start with something, when you already have the knowledge of like, okay, what did we learn from IBC? What are, where does it like, where are areas where it leaves something to be desired? And where we felt that the most is it, it provided like very good guarantees, but also had some rigidity. It, uh, clearly was, uh, we thought, you know, the most elegantly designed, uh, protocol. How can we take that design and then just make it much, much more extensible now to make it more extensible, we wanted it to be able to kind of be agnostic to any VM so that if someone took the time to convert it and make it suitable for, uh, for a VM, it should generally work out of the box. We wanted something that could, uh, and IBC actually does this too. It just, uh, it's a lot more work to enable, but IBC can support many different security settings. It's not, you know, it doesn't have to be the light client verification. It could accept other modes, but yeah, a lot of work to get it there. So we wanted to make it such that adding a new security setting is considerably easier than it is now than like going out and creating like new IPC clients. So for us, it's something that is mostly done in contracts with some minor modification, like at the agent level, because ultimately, right? Like the relayer, which is what takes your message, it needs to know what it's reading. Uh, so every time you add a new module, like if it does something special with the message contents, there needs to be some relayer modification, but that is uh, pretty light. And so that's really where the big changes are. It's like we tried to make something that's more extensible and less rigid and easier to extend, uh, even in areas where IBC could already extend today. Uh, beyond that, very, very similar protocols. Uh, and that's the primary reason why, like, we are not in any way pushing for like two IBC chains to use Hyperlane and, uh, you know, like it's, you'll even notice, right? Like in the bridge that you use the Nexus, like we're running IBC between, uh, you know, on the first leg of that transfer, we're just going on over IBC. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. I mean, it, it, it again, it's just, it's the. It's the notion of kind of um, going with what is best and and kind of the the most reputable options. Kind of switching gears a bit, um, and I appreciate that uh, that that distinction there, and also the recognition. I think you let the IBC maxis will appreciate that, um, and even further, kind of diving into the more of the modular subject. Um, start with like a fun question, like what what part of the stack are you most bullish on for disruption? You know, are you most bullish on on EVM or and kind of VMs displacing it or kind of Ethereum on the DA layer displacing that interop is is, is an obvious one. Uh, sequencing like what what kind of the modular stack are you most bullish on? Oof. Well, you know what? I'll do you different. I'll tell you what I'm now uh, most bearish on or like not bearish, but just the one that I think needs the most work. Exactly. Where if that work is done and like done well, we're like everyone should be like giga bullish right and um i forget who it was i think it was fubar someone had uh a great tweet that like really not that many people understand like hands-on because not that many teams do it but like something that our my team was like oh yeah super super familiar with this one 
you know, something like uh, everyone is like, you know, modular maxi until you try and like connect the 17 different RPCs and like, oh, only 17? What? That, that's a low number. It's a rookie, rookie numbers. You got to pop up those numbers. Uh, but that's probably like, I'd say right now, the biggest problems is there is not, uh, there isn't like a unified place. There's not great coverage for RPCs for all of this. Uh, I think some of the folks at uh, Modular Cloud are working on this, and I think their work is is very much needed and quite exciting. But something has got to give. You know, this is currently now like the biggest operational uh, sticking point to to these connections. It's uh, nine times out of ten when we have an issue or where one of our users has an issue, it's RPC related. Um, and so if that part of the stack list, this like boring infrastructure, you know, you could say it ties to the VM because obviously like the client that you're using plays a role in how you can extend right. uh, the RPC. But that part, it's it's a total fucking mess right now. As uh, yeah. very honest. Well, what does that mean? What does that mean? Like, if I have a modular role that's using movement for VM and hyperlink for interop and uh, Celestia for DA, and then I have a separate modular role that's using um, avail for DA, it's using uh, you know a, um, a different VM, it's using fuel VM, and it's using hyperlink for interop, and then I've got a third that's using eigenlayer DA, it's using you know Solana VM, and it's using hyperlink for interop. Do I need three? separate RPCs for that? Is, is that what you're saying? I need three separate RPCs? No, not even. So each one of those services needs to consume uh, one RPC. What you'll need is a distinct RPC for each one of those rollups. But, uh, oh yeah, that's, that, that's, yeah. And so, yeah, and so, so that is where things get a little like hairy, right? Because you'd, you're this chain operator, like either you're building it all yourself or you're using one of the roll-up service providers. Uh, there's just like everything here is still like pretty nascent. It's kind of like 2018. I remember um, the folks from Block Damon like pitching uh, pitching my team on like, hey, come invest in us. And then saying like, listen, it's imperative that spinning up an Ethereum node is like a you know four-click process that you can do it in like a few minutes. If this industry you're betting on, like, is going to grow, pretty much every app developer, you're all talking about, like, developers, 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 well, they're going to need access to nodes. Like, they can't get data from the chain without it. They can't do all these things that you think that they're going to be doing. And lo and behold, uh, Alchemy and Fura, Black Damon, all of these became really big businesses uh, because their services are so needed, right? Like, we depend on QuickNotes. But QuickNode, Alchemy, all of these folks right now, when you're, you know, like either they enter this game and kind of create like an on-demand roll-up service uh, or service for these roll-ups or basically like either they're running the sequencer or something, but someone needs to run a node for your roll-up and then that access to that node needs to be extended through like as a, you know, as a RPC endpoint. And that part is right now, like, it's the most boring part, but yeah, it is yeah. the most critical. Because uh, none of this stuff can even happen without it. So you're, not even, so you're just saying, like, forget DA, forget VMs, 
We yeah. can't even have a world with all these different modular rollups if we don't have a damn RPC provider who can just very quickly make new RPCs for all these rollups. Totally. And then who in their right mind is going to add all these RPCs to their freaking MetaMask or Rabi or whomever? Right. And so that part, that one, like, as I said, like, this is the, the, call it like the, 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 the foundational issue is like an RPC one. And then you have everything else. Like, it's like adding all of those. And so you're, I think, um, one thing that we're seeing more and more is like where apps can, uh, prompt you to make that switch. So you don't have to do it yourself. Cause like the, what we were dealing with, you know, uh, a year ago, two years ago, where you had to manually add all the RPCs and you had to do the switches every time. Like now where you get many more like prompts to add a new network and it's just like click. Prompts to switch and it's just like click. That's a much better state of the world, you know, than uh, just like a year and a half ago. But that can't happen if the fucking roll-up doesn't have a reliable uh, RPC. In the first place, man. <laughs> so, so that is one thing we're like, I'm most bullish on changes in this area because it is foundational. Like when I was an investor, I used to always think like, what? What's so I'm going to, I'm looking at like this project. They want to do this thing. What's a necessary assumption. What's like a base thing where if that doesn't happen, none of what these people are telling me could even happen. And then like lever up on those like foundational on the ones that are needed. (laughs) <laughs> like 2018 it was pretty clear like wait a second okay so we're all super mega bullish crypto but if there's going to be more crypto than just bitcoin then there has to be like these proof of stake networks it's not all going to just run on you know on like proof of work and like these mining uh, operations like i was a small time miner and it fucking sucked i hate mining i hate everything mm-hmm. about it there's the alt L1 thesis right there. That's where you had to pitch. The yeah. Thesis. And so then you're like, wait a second. There's no way that crypto is like a $10 trillion industry if this yeah. thing doesn't happen. So of course we're going to bet along this line. Next thing we know, Cardano is in the top five. <laughs> These things have been pumping. Apparently Cardano DeFi is popping off. Oh, Complete, guys. Oh, Funny you mentioned it. There was actually a team that built... Uh, there is a team that's built or is building, I should say, Hyperlane to run on Cardano. I bet there are, and they're going to. And, and we should start. We we not that we want to, but even if oh, we just stop, stop them, we could. Yeah. Even if we yeah, want right. to. Uh, so it's no power to the people, baby. Yeah, and so similarly, I think of like you know the same for for the modular ecosystem like this. It, it's well, that's not a sexy answer. It's not. No, I know. But once you do that, like you incorporate that into all the other bets you're making. Like if that doesn't have, it's hard to be like mega bullish on anything. So how do we bet on this? You also said that your team has thought a lot about this. Yeah. There's, there's like a half discussion here, like every other week is like, so why are we pivoting to that thing? Yeah. It's such a fucking issue. Like it's, I'm telling you, if you did like, uh, if you collected all the alerts, that we get, you know, like all the, you know, issues with like a hyperlane on any chain anywhere. I bet you over 80% are related to like unstable RPCs. Are the, the roll-up as a service providers not thinking about this as well as are, are they are absolutely thinking about it. And I think that's one area where like they could start developing an edge. Um, 
we work with a bunch of them and like these are very very sharp people everyone is everyone who's like in the weeds is aware of this issue like this is but isn't it like a it's a manpower problem, right? It's a data indexing problem, and yet it's to some extent a manpower problem for sure. Yeah, it, there's also like uh, distributed systems, like how do we, you know, solve this like with better software? So that's a part of it too. It's obviously not easy to do, but it's the, you know, if all of this was being done by like a single operator. So like, let's say if you had one company. And that one company was going to take in clientele for all of these new rollups. And then like, so imagine a world where there's only, there's, uh, only two options, either like you do it all by yourself or like you use this one rollup service provider and they did everything themselves. Then this would, that part is like, we, that's just straight manpower. Like they know how to do that. That's very easy. It's. Uh, there is still like some engineering work to figure out like how to do this completely self-serve at scale. Uh, but I don't, from our conversations, it doesn't seem like, you know, there's a lot of unknown, uh, unknown unknowns there. Like it's stuff that people know how to do. Just someone needs to take the time to do it. Uh, and it gets harder the more providers there are because like, uh, anyways, we need a standard, you know, like a standard base uh, build, Bob the Builder RPC. Stop calling it. For sure. But there's a, <laughs> uh, Al. Al. You know, I'm not, a, I'm not an engineer by training, you know, I'm uh, kind of walking through this. Uh, but there's the X, uh, XKCD comics that the engineers all love. And there's one of them that's really relevant for this. And it's basically for like any type of developer product. And it's like, this guy goes, we need, we need a standard for this thing. And you see the two, the two people they're working and then it's like, we made a new standard. And then the, the last one is like, now there are 15 standards for this. Yeah. Welcome to, welcome to Ethereum standards right there. So, okay. So we're going to place a hundred million dollars. Uh, we're going to take a loan from the bank and place it all in the next RPC provider. Well, we hit a hundred X on that. You're going to okay, check. All right. We'll save some of that for, uh, that's right. You got it for, for the, for the next hyper raise. But then once we're done with the RPC bet and it's freaking gone to the moon and we are set for life, you know, we're trying to invest in the modular, in the modular, uh, thesis, the, the typical stack. Um, where do you see the most upside in disruption for the typical stack? I'd say once you've done that, the, uh, I would have bets lining across the less explored areas of the stack. Like you said, and again, obviously, uh, there's a bias here, but most folks don't think of interoperability as being part of the stack, right? They think of it as a completely like orthogonal thing. You know, at best they think of it as orthogonal, like at worst, they don't think about it at all. So definitely feels like this is an underexposed area. And, you know, what is, when you talk about it from like, What's the price of an asset? You know, the price of an asset to me was always something that we viewed as like, how do people think about and feel about this thing today? And like, what's a price change? Price change is in dollar terms, one of two things happening. Either more people uh, changing their mind about the thing, you know, if they like it, then it goes up. If they dislike it, it goes down or more dollars. So either more people or more dollars. And sometimes it's both 
right? Like more people and more dollars. Sometimes it's uh, the same amount of people, just less dollars, right? But those are, this is basically what's happening. And so if we both agree that, hey, this is an underexposed, underexplored area and people are not connecting it uh, so vividly to the modular pieces, then you can expect that at some point when they will, there will be a price reaction because clearly like the number of people that feel this way is going to change and the amount of dollars that feel this way is going to change and you want to be there uh, at the benefit from that. So certainly interoperability one of those areas, but, uh, and I don't know how to capture this part yet, but I reckon that there might be something along the lines of, uh, like maybe it's part of the DA, maybe it is part of like the roll-up framework itself, but like what's the base thing that lets you even spin up a roll-up? So mechanically, like the RPCs are a part of it, but you know, right now people are using the OP stack. So does that mean like maybe you should get exposed to like optimism because of what the, the super chain, like that it's still, you know, there's still a lot of work to do and like fleshing out of that vision, but that is something I also think because almost no one seems to understand it. I'm pretty sure that's an underexposed area that uh, I'm feeling quite bullish on. And so I'm not telling you like OP, like optimistic. Yeah, no, just in quick, general though. But just yeah. in general, which framework do you think is going to get, yeah, which one is going yeah. to get the most traction? Like, and then how are they trying, to, how are they thinking about, you know, uh, value within that sphere? And the super chain, I'd say, is like the most, you know, and again, even though it still has so much stuff to be figured out about it, it feels right now like the most coherent story uh, around like a framework having some, capturing some value. Rob, there's only one question here. When token? You know, Jake Holt says, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, let the chopper rain. When token hyperlane, we've got to accrue some value in this, <laughs> up in here. You know, uh, that's like, right. Just wait on the answer. Um, so I, I don't know is the answer. Uh, we've certainly thought about, uh, building one. And I think it's uh, very interesting. Like, you know, I think using it in such a way where you kind of create an alliance or, you know, some type of like affiliation between all of the chains and rollups that are using Hyperlane. Uh, and all the developers that are pairing them, right? Because like, you know, a developer tool is really only as valuable as the developers that use it. And so how do you bring them into the mix? Um, but that's kind of the, the extent of it. I'm afraid we just haven't had the time to give something like this to what it deserves. Half jokingly not was the, was the a funny question and I, I would, I'd shame you if you spent more time on tokenomics rather than building secure interrupt for the modular worlds. Um, and Rob, Rob, I I'd like to dive into that article that we uh, were uh, perusing through with regards to the restaking as a means for more uh, securing interoperability. But I feel like you've got something that you want to ask J. Cole about his previous lyrics that he's fit to us today. And I got to let's... My mind was thinking about it when we're... When we're... Like when we're thinking about these these stacks, these deployable stacks that kind of like are able to harness a bunch of developer like like brain power, is it <clears throat> is it kind of like uh, accurate to think about Hyperlane as like this interoperability stack? Because 
and we spoke about the modular thesis and then we also spoke about kind of the aggregation of of like these protocols so it almost has like these inner components and then it has like this this blossoming like permissionless like place where you can plug into it is, is this kind of how you think about like your mental model for interoperability or do you think of hyperlane interoperability not really in a stack format but more in so like a like a set of tools how do you think about it you know that's a that's a very very good question uh we do think of it a little bit more like i guess somewhere in between those two where you know like i guess the only reason i'm avoiding the the stack terminology is because we don't want people to think of it as like that there are two separate ones, right? Where it's like, hey, here's the hyperlane one and here's the modular one. And like, you can kind of use both. It's like, no, this is, you know, so e within each layer, there might be, you know, sub layers, right? So uh, certainly true for the modular stack. Uh, and I want to think of hyperlane and specifically this concept of permissionless interoperability is like you have DA, you have execution, you have settlement then you have permissionless interoperability. And like, that's the role that Hyperlane plays. Now within it, yeah, there are, you know, there's levels to this game. And so, uh, bars. Nah, you, you, know, you don't want to separate it, man. Yeah, exactly. Those things are out of as uh, distinct because I like, just think there's going to be just more and more layers being added on, like, you know? Well, end of next year, it's going to be like there's eight layers to this stuff. I think that for like an evolution, like a maturity of the ecosystem, because as it is able to like evolve, it tends to specialize. So we we end up like there was just monolithic and it had all of these components that are now modular baked in. It had execution, settlement, everything, DA, all in one stack. Now the industry is able to evolve into a place where it's starting to specialize these different pieces. We're just kind of like getting a clearer picture of each part yeah and now we're they're in like plug in plug out of different parts with one another you can combine these pieces because now they're standalone you're able to combine them into different flavors for different use cases yeah and i think you know the big opportunity really will be uh like it's the seam like the the experience when using a roll-up that uh is obviously part of the modular stack it needs to be on par with like when I just go and I use uh, something like Solana, right? Like I can't be, you know, in the Utah, but like, how the fuck am I going to manage all these RPCs? Like, I can't be that. It can't be like, oh, I was going to do this thing, but I guess my, oh, you know, I want to go to the banana store, but like, fuck, banana store only accepts banana coin. And shit. I'm like, it's all... Everything it's just apples. I only got apple calling today. Ah, what do I do? Like, so I go back home and then I go and I go get my banana tokens. Like, fuck, I don't want to do that. Uh, it needs to be like, I go to the store. And it's like, hey, here's the thing. And like, we're done. Because uh, that's why, that's how something like uh, any, you know, any standalone chain works right now. And so what is going to the processes or the technologies by which, you know, like the modular experience can't be made seamless is, uh, you know, if the, you want to be like an area to, to invest on, like whatever is going to make that happen, 
maybe it'll be us, maybe it'll be someone else. That to me is like the multi-billion dollar opportunity just because like it's foundational, you know, just like the RPCs bits, that's foundational too. So is this thing, like without something like that, it, uh, the modular experience is just not going to be competitive. Um, that's the big thing. If you can't compete with Solana, you're done. Yeah. Love it. Um, most, why wasn't that we use it? Exactly. And so that's, you know, it's, it's coming along, right? The Mudzo ecosystem is still, uh, very, very new, you know, but I'm pretty excited. Um, uh, glad you are. You, 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 you wrote a great piece about, um, um, that was you that wrote the piece, right? About the, uh, no, actually, uh, the, uh, the AVS thing. No, no, that was one of some bigger brains. I'm not that smart. It was, uh, York Giga brain is just, uh, an amazing guy who works here. Mr. Rose. What a great guy that guy is. Uh, and he really took his time to take a big steamy poop on ZK Litecoin. So before we jump into why, and perhaps I'm being a little bit over-exaggerated here, but could you explain to us, uh, even in priorities? What is a, a light client and why are light clients useful in, in uh, general message passion or just kind of cross shit interrupt? So I guess all we need to know for the context of light clients for messaging is a light client is just an, uh, so a client or a node is something that allows us to not just run the state, be, uh, to access the state on a given chain, but because we are participating in the act of consensus, we have a good sense of like, well, we wouldn't lie to ourselves. So what my node, what my client spits out is generally like a true form of the consensus, but that can be quite um, unpleasant to run, right? Like there's a big lift that's involved there. A light client is just a lighter version of that. Uh, being able to, you know, like this is a gross, gross, gross oversimplification. So, uh, I'll have to, people will have to excuse me, but you know, if we had to use like full, you know, full nodes for everything we wanted to do from an interoperability perspective, that would make the operations of that system very, very difficult. So like, what are we doing when we send the message from, uh, one chain to another, we need to get some level of comfort with this state that we are transferring. If you want to tell, like, if you want to send something from your chain to Robbie's, then the people on Robbie's chain need to feel good about what you sent over. That, like, this jet, like, that there is state on Andy's chain that reflects what you want to happen on Robbie's. And so a light client is like one way to get a sneak peek into that state and feel very good about its provenance. You know, another way is like a group of people, call them validators, tell you this is what happened. It's like, you know, bro, trust me, bro. Like this is, you know, I'm telling you, this is like, it's true. Like this is, you know, I just was on Andy's chain. This is legit. This is the thing that's happening. Um, a light client is a way to do that where you're just basically trusting that the chain's consensus is valid. Uh, now, if you're, uh, if you were able to get, uh, if you have like a light client or at the same time you have like a validator system, but it's all the same validators, the people who do the consensus and the people who validate the message are all the same, then effectively like you're, you know, you're ending up with the same result, but that is rarely the case, right? Because like for chains like Ethereum, you have a massive, massive validator set. It would be very, very difficult to get every single one of them 
And so that's why light clients are very useful uh, for messaging, but they're not available everywhere. And uh, this lack of available, like if light clients were available everywhere, then things like XLR uh, or Hyperlane or Wormhole really wouldn't exist because uh, something like IBC could just leverage those light clients everywhere and it would have really taken over um, just kind of like the entire connectivity landscape. And so part of the impetus to make Hyperlane was like, wait a second, we don't have this technology everywhere. We're probably going to get it more and more and more as, uh, you know, there's like a whole move of ZK light clients. Still early, but it's happening. And then like, let's build Hyperlane in a way that it could absorb this as it comes on in the future. And then if your chain is that already use Hyperlane, like instead of saying, fuck, I got to pick up, you know, ZK light client number 33 now instead of, and I got to abandon everything we did with Hyperlane. Like with Hyperlane, it's, hey, I was using this security mechanism over here. Now there's a new one over there. I'm just like, point to that one. Super bullish. Uh, Super bullish on Hyperlane. Basically, unreplace, irreplaceable from a, a, a interrupt perspective. And, and and one thing that I'm realizing, and, and, I, and I say that because Susanna Evans from IBC came on a space with a bunch of other interrupt people, more or less in the EVM modular space, and she was pushing my client's art. Rob and I also have talked to uh, the union build team building ZK light clients from IBC EDM a lot. And so you that could be kind of to to be able to underpin them or I guess in a sense be the layer on top of them and, and absorb them is super, super bullish. Again, kind of the aggregation thesis. And the other point on the um on the on the light client uh, thought that I'm having and that I'm realizing with this modular stack is that a lot of this is rather than sacrificing uh and, and creating a trade-off. So with things like light clients and data availability, data availability sampling, you're basically not making the trade-off, but you're getting the better effect of lower cost or higher speed without necessarily forgiving that security just by kind of analyzing a, a cryptographic amount of proof in that in the state. You can then, you know, reasonably justify that hey, this is correct. Um, and so it's not necessarily like a full trade-off. It's like well, based on the proof of you know of of the code, we can assess this in in just you know, for lack of better understanding, a third of the total uh, you know uh, storage or a third of the total uh, consensus, and and you know spread it out in a randomized order, you know change it up each time or however you know that kind of works on the tech end on the cryptography, and then boom, you kind of get the solution without the trade-off. And so that's I'm starting to understand that a lot of this modular stuff is. Is 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 getting better results by in, by improving the implementation of proving and of of like verification without necessarily getting the or accepting the trade off that would typically come with it in a modular step or in a in a monolithic step. Uh, that was really interesting. Yeah, and um, one thing I I haven't uh, gone into it yet, but you wanted to talk a little bit about the restaking piece. Like from our perspective, like the end game of uh, of the restaking work is like, how can we get to a standpoint where, so day one, when we have restaking live, we'll be able to use that to secure everything that goes out from Ethereum. And so if you're a new rollup, you want to connect with Ethereum, you could use Hyperlane and know that what's coming to you from Ethereum is secured by eigenlayer restakers. But how can we take that one step further so that your rollup can actually use it for the stuff it's sending back to Ethereum. And that, uh, 
that's going to be not just an engineering challenge. It's also going to be like a little bit of a hearts and minds kind of because we'll need to convince those restakers that we can create a system that uh, basically tells them like, yeah, you know what, you're, you should put your stuff at risk, like taking, st you know, like accepting, uh, you know, uh, messages from like Andy's change or, you know, basically staking your assets uh, on the security uh, messages from uh, Andy's change because like this will work out for you. Long run, this will work out for you. And there's, it's not going to be an easy thing. But engineering, they're already taking the risks of research. Yeah, exactly. So there are, that's the end game we'd love to get to. So, so is, is using restaking, is that building on top of um, the already preset validator networks, like clients, et cetera, then you add another level of consensus with restaking, or are you suggesting that you know using restaking for ETH somehow is like is like a replacement for using these other validator sets? Um, or kind of you know, it can be both replacement yeah. or supplement. So uh, you know, like one thing. Uh, so the nice thing with everyone is like using one security module doesn't mean that you can't use others. And so you could have like, uh, you could use the uh, restaking one, which might be a more expensive option because the restakers got to get paid. Maybe you only want to use that for really big occasions, uh, right? Say like transfers only of like 5 million and up shouldn't go through this because like, yeah, you want something more secure and you're going to pay up for that. Uh, I don't know. We don't know yet what the cost difference will be. Like that marketplace is not yet uh, functioning, but I imagine that market forces will lead to that price uh, landing somewhere. It's probably going to be higher than the price that like your run-of-the-mill uh, validator would want to get paid um, because they're putting less at risk in that case. Uh, so not necessarily a replacement, but in a lot of places, uh, it will probably act as a replacement for some of the traffic, at least like the higher value traffic. And in the piece, it said that, um, you know, all, and this is kind of general for restaking in that, uh, you know, by, by restaking, you then get basically more, um, call it capital efficiency, call it consensus mechanisms for different AVSs, actively, active, actively validated services. You get to open up more use cases for your, for your restaked ETH. And then, you know, earlier you kind of mentioned that some of these uh, different chains and different uh, projects using Hyperlink to also put something at stake as well, like Lido, um, et cetera. What, what's the, what's the, uh, yeah, what's the, is the, is the main reason behind utilizing restaking? Is it because this proof of stake model of the, the incentivization design? Is that why you guys are so bullish on it? Or is there, is it a, is it a combination of that and security and yield that you can offer people or? Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's more the latter. Uh, sorry, it's more the, the, more the former, um, that, uh, part of it is like, people feel very good about, uh, you know, staked Ethereum as a mode, uh, like providing economic security, you know, like people generally, like the way people think about economic security is that it's good up until when it's not right. Like no one would feel good with a uh, million dollars securing a hundred but they'd feel pretty good with a million dollars securing less than a million and so 
the biggest pool of capital right now available in crypto is, uh, I guess it's technically Bitcoin, but if not, uh, it's the amount of uh, Ethereum stake. And so being able to tap into that just immediately uh, opens you up for the largest pool of economic security. Now, I'm not going to tell you that it's like, um, it's not going to be a slam dunk because one thing this does not really get thought of when folks uh, think about economic security through restaking is that like it becomes less useful the more people use it. Uh, so it has like a, you know, an inverse uh, network effect. Like as if you're the first one to use it, you're like, this is great. I just pay whatever, uh, you know, like if there's $10 worth of it, maybe I'll play a dollar a year in premiums. But then you come in and you're like, oh, okay, I want it too. Well, what should you pay for it? Because like now both of us are relying on it. So we could have an event, like you could start paying for it. Now you're, we're both paying a dollar, the three stakers, but stoked. They're, you know, they're taking in $2 of premiums a year, 20% premiums. Uh, their capital base is life's amazing. Uh, then like something happens on my side and now I just got half of it slashed. You've been paying $2. or So you've been paying a dollar, same as month, as much as me. And now you're kind of out of luck, right? Because what's happened is that you've paid the same, you didn't do anything. And at the same time, the uh, available budget for you, like the security budget just got reduced. Um, and so this is like a very interesting dynamic. I don't think we'll actually hit it because I doubt there'll be like many slashing events, but like this is uh, like probably the thing I'm most interested just from like a personal perspective, like seeing how that part of the market develops. Uh, but without this, you know, uh, we are not going to be able to tap into this awesome, awesomely large pool of uh, economic security. And it's a useful thing to be able to tap into it. And so it's going to happen one way or another. Yeah, th this isn't necessarily on, on interop, but since we're on the point, and I realize we're, we're kind of drawing towards, uh, towards time, but this has been like my my like sticking point on restaking ever since I kind of like like really I think like ca like caught what was going on with the concept because my understanding of restaking is basically like these networks are taking out like essentially they're using security on margin. It's like we're taking the like proof of stake of Ethereum and now we're applying it and we're rehypothecating it to another rollup. And like what happens when there's margin and rehypothecation? It's like you can get margin called. And what happens for that proof of stake underlying the security of your rollout gets liquidated? What like what happens? What happens to all the other rollups that are also relying on the same pool of collateral to secure their rollup? This does like because something happens on J. Cole chain to like get like does that mean something's gonna like affect Andy and Robbie chain? Like these are the like consider the hard questions. Who's that? Those are the hard questions, and uh, it's it's one like the, the I think the best answers I have for it are come from actually like from the bond world, uh, where like you think of just you know, I think in general like if you looked at like the credit risk, uh, like Ethereum stakers as a whole, it's AAA, it's very good, but 
now some of the things they're going to start securing, they're going to look like triple C's. They're going to look like, you know, uh, really not great companies. Oh, we know. Oh, we know. Don't you worry. So it's the for these AVS pitch decks, man. It's so, uh, uh, yeah, there's going to be like, who is going to be the credit agency and who's going to be like, you know, patrolling the beat to make sure that the credit quality of the restaking pool stays AAA. Because that's what generally when people think of it, like from my conversation so far, people do think of this as like, oh, this is a AAA credit that, that I'm buying here. Uh, but if it's, it's permissionless, if it's permissionless restating, right. I could, well, that's why I don't think all crap I fed on top of that thing. Yeah, I don't think uh, restaking can ever be uh, truly permissionless. Unless, like, you know, it'll be permissioned by, like, some programmatic means where it's like, you know, it's like, oh, we have, you know, like, our investment strategy here is not like a person. You know, it's like Renaissance. It just it runs, you know, it's just the model run. So, like, you feed it some inputs and it decides, like, yes, this is an acceptable addition or not. Uh, but there has to be some type of, like, permissioning. It might like the way that it's handed about might not have to be like, oh, well, you have to go to the, the restaking office and talk to the restaking officer and see if they'll agree to let you restake. But uh, someone's going to have to decide and like the best way or the most scalable way might for be for it to be a machine. But otherwise, I don't know uh, how. And like the, the current, like I think the Eigenlayer team is very, very adept at this. Like they totally understand it. They have really cool ideas about how to uh, deal with these issues. And that's why, like, you know, you said, like, those pitch decks for those AAVS is, like, not everybody uh, gets through. Goodness gracious, man. Goodness gracious. Uh, by the time we have uh, permission restaking, we're going to have AI police. And uh, you're not going to be able to take your dog out for a walk past 9 p.m. So make sure you guys take your dogs out for a walk at night. And uh, thank you so much, J. Cole, for coming on and rapping to us for an hour. It's been a pleasure, man. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the DeFi by Design podcast. And a big thank you to all of our sponsors for their support. Please check them out in the links below, as well as on our website and in our newsletter. We'll be back with more exciting guests and insights. Until then, stay curious, stay informed, and keep designing the future of DeFi.